0: a Bible you can open it to John chapter 13 John chapter 13 I'm not going to sing from here it's not what this is about John chapter 13 that's where we're going to be once again we started it last week we're going to continue in it this week uh, this last week of life I have been participating in one of the favorite pastimes of young of parents of young children which is uh, watching bits and pieces of the same movie eight billion times, right? That's just what we do. I don't, maybe maybe that's what my era of parents do because we have Netflix and stuff. But that's what we do. And so uh, my daughter is in the uh, she's in the in the mode right now of watching the new Pixar movie Luca, which I would totally recommend. It's a it's a great one. Uh, and as of right now, I I still haven't actually seen the whole thing, but I think I've seen all of the parts of it, just not all at the same time together because I watch like you know, eight, ten minutes at a time at most, and then I'm doing something else, and she just has it on. Uh, anytime she's watching TV lately, it's been Luca. And so for a while, it was Rhea, and Before that, it was Frozen, and then the other Frozen, and now it's Luca. And so um, one of the scenes, even though I haven't seen the whole movie, I've seen this scene a number of times that gets me uh, every time. And at the end of the movie, I think one of the most beautiful artistic de- de- depictions of male affection that I've seen in a long time, like in a really healthy, wholesome way. I love it. Uh, But before that, there is a scene that gets me every time. And I think if you watch it, it'll get you too. Pixar just really knows how to do emotions really well, right? Uh, They literally made a whole movie about that. But there's a scene where one of the characters just brutally betrays their friend, it just brutally betrays one of their, their only good friend in the movie. And so betrayal, I think, is an, it's an emotion that all of us have felt, right? We've all felt that feeling of betrayal. Sometimes we don't even know that that's the feeling we're having until someone gives us the language. You're like, oh, yeah, betrayal. That's what I feel. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so sometimes maybe you've been in this. You, you don't know you've been betrayed till a long time later, like years later. And you're like, dang, that person really, I can't believe they did that. And then there's some kinds of betrayal, like what this movie portrays, which is just betrayal right in your face. The kind of betrayal that the relationship doesn't normally come back from, right? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, And and so it's devastating. And maybe you've tasted that in your life. I hope not, but likely many of us have tasted at some point or another some kind of Betrayal, maybe from a friend, or uh, those of us who are a little older, we probably we probably felt this a little more when we were younger, teenagers and younger than that. As friends said, like I don't want to be your friend anymore, and like that. Oh my gosh, devastating. And then as you get older, you feel that in different ways, maybe at work or in your family or whatever. And so, in today's text, we're going to see a really really poignant example of what Hebrews 4.15 meant when it said that Jesus experienced every kind of difficulty that we've experienced. Now, it says that he did that and yet without sin, but that he experienced it. So today we're going to see Jesus experience this really gut-wrenching reality of betrayal Uh, by someone who says to your face that they love you and is with you. And what we know from the Gospels is this isn't going to be the last time that Jesus experiences it from this person in particular. So we're going to see that. But we're also going to see the same motive that we saw in Jesus last week play itself out even more. You remember last week we saw the washing of the disciples' feet. And so we're going to see that motive of love that's underneath Jesus as he reaches out to this betrayer right? Judas in love. And hopefully, my hope is that we'll hear the call of Jesus to us to love others with this kind of radical love, which uh, as John says in chapter 12, this is the kind of love that has no end. That's what Jesus loved his disciples with. So I'm going to ask Hannah to come up and she's going to read you the text. We're going to be in John thirteen eighteen to 35. And so Hannah's going to read for us. make sure it's on. Oh, it is. My fault.
1: I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table at at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot then after he had taken the morsel Satan entered into him Jesus said to him what you were going to do do quickly no one at the table knew why he said this to him some thought that because Judas had the money bag Jesus was telling him buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor so after receiving the morsel of bread he immediately went out and it was night when he had gone out jesus said now is the son of man glorified and god is glorified in him if god is glorified in him god will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once little children yet a little while i am with you you will seek me And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another.
0: Thanks, Hannah. You may have noticed recently that we are doing more of these kind of scripture readings, and uh, maybe you're wondering why, maybe not, but I'm going to tell you why either way. Um, it's, it's because this is, an, this is a, a tradition as old as Christianity itself. The public reading of scripture is something that's really central to uh, what it has meant to be part of a church. And so uh, I was convicted as we kind of came out of, you know, COVID world, that that's something we needed to start doing again as a way to just kind of attach ourselves to the long history that we have, as well as doing the other things that we do in a service, like praying together and giving and singing, Uh, we have an ancient faith. And so I always want to remind you of that. So We've heard this text from uh, John 13, and, and so when Jesus wrapped up washing the disciples' feet, as we saw in the text from last week, he explained what he had done, and it's likely, uh, based on kind of my reading and study, that Jesus probably said this with some force. This is what he says in John 13, 16, and 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Right? He, he's saying this with a little bit of force, probably because of the discussion that they had as they were walking into the room about who was going to be the greatest. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then we get to the beginning of today's text. And I imagine that Jesus changes his tone of voice. He lowers his voice and he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, in the ESV translation that I'm reading from, that little end is in quotes... He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me because Jesus is actually quoting from Psalm 41, right? He's saying to them, not all of you in this room are blessed because one of you is going to lift up his heel against me in betrayal. And that's actually a quote from Psalm 41, uh, which is generally agreed upon that it's referring to a man who betrayed King David and then hung himself. And so Jesus is almost speaking prophetically, quoting this psalm here, and he's saying this because he's letting them know that sadly, Judas is going to end up in the same place. He's saying there is a betrayer in our fellowship. Uh, And so, verses 19 and 20, he continues, and he tells them something that they're going to need to know. "'I am telling you this now before it takes place, "'so that when it does take place, "'you may believe that I am he.'" And then he says that, that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, you, always want to pay attention whenever Jesus says that. Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So you see this almost spiritual lineage in the way that Jesus talks about faith. And in a little while when we take communion, this is a very similar language. right? I received and now I deliver to you. Same kind of thing. So, so Jesus is saying to these men in this room, listen, there is dark times ahead. Not long from now, things are going to get very bad. I want you to know this now so that when it happens, you're going to believe and you won't stumble. You're going to believe and you won't stumble. But I also want you to remember that when you receive me, When you receive me, you receive not only me, but you receive the Father. And if you have the Father, you have all that you need. And Jesus is saying, I know you can't see it now, but dark times are close. So please, I'm begging you, remember these words when this stuff comes to pass. And then Jesus gets even more to the point in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, How does John know that he's troubled in spirit? How does John know that, right? Likely the same way that any of us would have known that Jesus was troubled in spirit, by the tone of his voice and by his body language. Remember, John is sitting right next to Jesus when this is happening, right? The look on his face that description is important because that word troubled, that Jesus is troubled in his soul, is the same word used a few uh, weeks back in John eleven thirty three, where Jesus stood by his friends, Lazarus' grave, and wept. He was troubled. Same language. It's also the same word that's used in John 12, 27, when Jesus thought about what's coming for him, and he says, now my soul is troubled. Same language. So all the disciples in the room could see the emotion, but they just couldn't tell that it was because of Judas. So that's one of the most incredible witnesses to the love that Jesus has for his disciples, even Judas, right? Here we are in this last moment with those he loves, just a few hours before he's going to be tortured and unjustly murdered by the state, that's what's going to happen, and so, so we can get why his heart would be troubled, right? Our heart would be troubled too. We'd be worried about ourselves in that moment, right? And it would be totally justified. We'd get it. But here what we see is that Jesus is actually not worried for himself. He, he seems to be worried for another. He seems to be worried about the state of another soul, specifically the one who is about to betray him for money and deliver him over to death. This is where we see the strength of Jesus on display in this vulnerability. That his weakness, apparent weakness, is actually his strength. This is where we see it in his love for another. And this morning, as I was writing this, I was just convicted. What we need to remember is that we're Judas, right? So often we are Judas. And listen, what that means is that Jesus is troubled for you. He loves you. He cares about you. He longs for your soul to turn to him. He is, out of the incredible depths of his love in his heart, troubled for you because he loves you. And if you doubt that he loves you, just keep reading John a little bit further and you'll see the cross and you'll be assured that he did that for you, out of love for you. And so the old hymn comes to mind, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free Rolling as the mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Beautiful words. And so Jesus is troubled over the soul of the one who's going to betray him. How radical is this? And the disciples didn't know that he was the betrayer, but they understood that one of them would betray. They they got the the depth of his words. They just didn't know who it was, which, which comes as a shock. Like imagine you're in that room, how shocking that is. Look at verse 22 in their response. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So again, as we've been saying, this is a gospel, so put yourself in the scene. You're sitting there in this little room with the disciples and Jesus, and what happens in this kind of moment when something like this is said? Have you been in a room like this? Somebody says something shocking that somebody did, and everybody like, well, not me, right? It doesn't mean me. It's not me, all, all the heads are turning and oh, oh all, the, all the looks are going across the room and, and there's Judas reclining at the table right next to Jesus saying it along with him. Not me, right? Nah, I mean, not me. This is where his heart is at. Now, a little background on Judas the commentators and the, like the theologians that you'll read will, uh, will tell you that he was probably a man of higher social status and more education than the rest of the disciples. Uh, this is really important in their day, this social status sort of, um, if you've heard of like the caste system in other parts of the world, not quite to that level, but, but social status really matters. You remember Jesus teaching when he says when you go to a party, don't go sit in the front and then be told to to sit at the end, sit at the end and let them call you up front, right? That, that's all about that status stuff. So Judas is not from Galilee, but he's from uh, Kerioth, which is a much better place to be from, right? I mean, we all, we still have that now. It's better to be from this place than that place. Oh, you're from there. Oh, you must be this kind of person, right? We, we know the same thing happens. Uh, one commentator said that Judas, quote, Judas was the real gentleman of all the teachers, So so he's the the one you don't expect this kind of behavior from, right? He's kind of in that category of well-educated, maybe a little more wealthy. He doesn't do that kind of thing. And so he had his class compared to the rest. And if we did that today, this would be the guy that's wearing the nice suit. He's a a well-polished churchman, if you will. Maybe you've been in the churches that have these guys. They know how to play the game. They know when to stand up, when to sit down. They know all the lyrics to all the songs. They know how to pray piously in front of everyone, and yet something else is going on inside. No one suspects him of being a traitor, and they didn't uh, they they didn't ex- suspect Judas either. And so once again, we see the love of Jesus actually displayed in the fact that none of the other disciples are picking up on this, because. You know as well as I do that in a tight group, like they've lived together for three years, these guys. They're tight, right? We know that disagreements happen, we just read about it, but still, they're like brothers at this point. And, And so in a tight group like this, if there had been any suspicion from Jesus towards Judas, they would have picked up on it. But as John records it, they have no idea, right? In any family, I mean, imagine in your family, what, I, could, I could just make you think of a specific memory right now. Think of that time when you were at the family gathering and somebody gave somebody else that look. You know which one I mean, right? They gave them the side eye and you went, uh-oh, it's about to go bad. This person is mad at this person. It doesn't take much in a family unit, in a, in a tight, bonded friendship group. The tiniest body language can mean so much, right? We even have, like, comedies about this. Have you ever watched that show, The Office?, Half of the comedy of that show is one guy giving facial expressions, right? It's like, that's the whole thing. A raised eyebrow, pausing before you say something, not saying something you should say, innuendo, tone of voice. We know what's meant by those things. We can communicate without language. And yet in the upper room, even though Jesus obviously knew Judas' heart, none of the other disciples know. Why? Why? Because Jesus is still reaching out in love to Judas. He's pleading with him. He is the father in the story of the prodigal son who goes out to, to get the older brother. Please come in. Even though he knows Judas' heart, he wants to reach him. Jesus never rejects Judas. And this is a beautiful illustration of how Jesus reaches out to us and to the world in love. And so if, if you don't know him, the love that Jesus manifests in the upper room is something to grab and hold on to for us. It's literally, in just a little bit in the Gospel of John, a matter of life and death. And so there's this electricity, I think, in the upper room. There's this tensity in the upper room of Jesus reaching out, even though no one else knows it, in love to Judas. He, he washes the disciples' feet, right? He washed Judas' feet too. He didn't skip Judas. He didn't just sprinkle Judas' feet and wash them, but no. He washed Judas' feet too. He told Peter, as he washed his feet, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Right? What is Jesus doing? He's letting Judas know that he's on to him and he's reaching out to him in a way that doesn't call him out and bring shame. He's saying, you're, you're not clean, but I want you to be. He's appealing to Judas's conscience, giving him reason to, to, to turn and to repent. Right? Imagine what it was like when Jesus washed Judas' feet. Imagine you're Judas. And here he is washing your feet, looking you in the face while he's doing it having the servant's towel around him, serving you in a way that's well beneath his place. And here you are knowing what you're about to do. And Jesus continues to reach out. And so when Jesus quotes from Psalm 41 about King David's betrayer, as we saw earlier, he's again reaching out to Judas. And Jesus is hoping that Judas turns back. You have to know that. Yes, Jesus knew what was going to happen, but he still is reaching out to Judas. This is part of the mystery of our faith. Now, even the way the table is arranged is a demonstration of the love Jesus had for Judas. The seating arrangement from kind of from left to right would have been Judas, Jesus, and then John. And so Jesus' head is leaning sort of into Judas' chest as they recline together, and as we read, John's head is leaning into Jesus' chest. And so Jesus had given Judas the left hand, which is this place of honor. When, when he brought him into the meal, he probably would have evidently uh, said something to him to, to call him to sit there. Judas, maybe, maybe he said, Judas, I, listen, I want to talk to you. Can, can you sit on my left? I want, I want you to sit by me. He, he's reaching for Judas's heart. This is what Jesus does. And I hope this morning he's reaching for our hearts as well, right? Look at verses 22 to 24. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Now, in case you're wondering, that's the guy writing this, that's John. That's John for you, right? He doesn't say me. He says the disciple Jesus loved. Jesus loved who was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, that's John. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Again, the body language that is in a close-knit group of people. Peter doesn't say, hey, John, ask him who it is. He nods at him. And John knows what he wants him to ask. You have relationships like that, right? You can like, hey, ask him, right? This is what's going on. And Jesus responds, I imagine quietly. It's it's he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So Peter signals John. John asks Jesus, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one who's, who's going to get this bread after I've dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now you have to know in the culture in this time to take a morsel, a little piece of food from the table and to dip it in the common dish and to offer it to someone else was a gesture of friendship. This is in our sort of vernacular, the offering the right hand of fellowship, right? Like a handshake sort of thing. That's what Jesus is doing here. Back in the Old Testament, in in, in the book of Ruth, the story of Boaz inviting Ruth to come fellowship with him, we see in chapter two that Boaz tells her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine with me. This is an expression of, I wanna be in relationship with you. And so Jesus is reaching out to Judas, literally with a piece of food in his hand. And he's saying, Judas here's my friendship here's restoration Judas I'm giving you my heart I'm being vulnerable will you take it will you come back to me all you have to do is take it we've been together for so long don't do this but in Judas's soul that door had been shut as as Matthew records it Judas says in Matthew 26 is it I rabbi and Jesus responds you have said so Notice Jesus doesn't say anything like, I've chosen you for this. He says, You've said so. And at that moment, there's a change in Judas. Look at verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now listen, this isn't Satan taking him over and making him choose. This is Judas hardening his heart to the point where he is open for Satan, the embodiment of evil, to come and take him. We might Be more accurate in saying, after he had taken the morsel, the Satan had entered him. The embodiment of evil had entered into him. He had crossed a line where he wasn't going to come back from it because of his choice. And Jesus said to him, What you were going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now listen, that's not just John recording that day became night. That's John saying the pieces have been set in motion. Jesus has been talking about darkness and light all throughout the gospel of John. And now John is saying, now it's night. He doesn't mean for that day, although it is. He means for the story of the life of Jesus, the night has come. The darkness has arrived. It's the midnight of not only the the day, but it's the midnight of Judas's soul. It it was the night that would know no morning for him. Judas had chosen this place of darkness and doom. And I I, I can't help but wonder that as he left the upper room that night, whether did he pause and look back? Did he think I shouldn't do this? Uh, What did he think? How, How alone are you when you've done this? When you've made this choice to step into darkness like this, you are utterly alone. He he had now had to follow around these because he's going to betray them. So he had to know where Jesus was, if he's going to get the money. So he has to follow them around without being seen. He has to conceal himself. And and so he he has this humongous loss and this separation, not only from the fellowship of the other disciples, but also from his acquaintance and friendship with Jesus. He's separated from all of that. And this, friends, is what sin does to all of us. It isolates and separates us when we choose sin over the presence of Jesus, we end up like Judas in this dark night. He's separated from peace of mind as he now is doing what he knows he ought not to do. That's how you know you've gone pretty far. When you start doing things you know you shouldn't do and you do them anyway, you've entered the night. And so Judas is a victim of his own heart. He is a victim of his own choices, and we're often victims of our own dark hearts and dark choices, right? He bears the responsibility for what he did. His his doings were his own thing. Yet he's also a victim of his own rejection of the love that Jesus displays for him. And so that love makes sense out of the rest of this text. With Judas gone, what happens? It's like the tension is gone. You've ever, you've experienced that, right? Maybe there's two family members in a heated argument at like Thanksgiving and the one who's mad leaves and you're like, "Whoo! all right. We can eat turkey now, right? We can, like the tension, who is is gone. And I imagine that partly is happening in this room. Yes, Jesus is sad. He knows what's going on. But it seems from the text, Jesus begun, begins to feel more free to teach. Because even though he speaks of the cross His conversation is able to to flow a little bit more now that Judas has gone. He says in verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. That's a title for Jesus. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Jesus, with this, turns from a demonstration of this kind of radical love to now teaching about the demand of this kind of radical love uh, that is required of us if we are to follow him. Let's keep going. Verse 34, he says this famous line. uh, If if you're familiar with kind of the more liturgical stuff in church, uh, Maundy Thursday gets its name from this particular verse. A new commandment I give you, a new mandate I give you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, here's what's weird. Jesus called this a new commandment, but the commandment to love one another is as old as the writings of Moses. This is not new. So, so why is this a new commandment? It's new because Jesus phrases it a little bit differently. See, the world at that time was divided by divisions that, as divided as our world looks, were way more intense. Master, slave. Jew, Gentile. The divide between men and women is far more vast than our world. The Greeks regard the Jews as barbarians. The Jews are uh, regarded by everyone else as being haters of the world. There's this chasm between the different classes. And so the world seems really alienated, like there's no solution for this. And Alexander McLaren, in his commentary, describes what happened because of Jesus' command. Barbarian, Scythian, bond, free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ. They were ready to break all other bonds and to yield to the uniting forces that streamed out from his cross. There never had been anything like it. No wonder that the world began to babble about sorcery and conspiracies and complicity and unnameable vices. It was only that the disciples were obeying this new command and a new thing had come into the world, a community held together by love and not by geographical accidents or linguistic affinities or the iron fetters of the conqueror. The new commandment made a new thing and the world wondered. This is the church. This is what Jesus is instituting here. This is the church. It's a band of brothers and sisters that's united under a banner of love and that love is made possible and empowered by the very blood of Jesus. See, left to ourselves, we seek our own. This is what we always do. This is what humanity has always done. This is what the Tower of Babel was about. Sin separates us into our little enclaves. We separate into these little affinity groups. And most recently... Let's get real and modern. These groups are centered around political power and ideology, right? That's how we are doing it right now. But that is not what the church is centered on. We just sang about it. We just sang about it. We are not united because we're right-leaning or left-leaning. We are not united as a church because we are conservative or progressive. And in case you're wondering, I mean all the issues that those two words mean. That is not what unites us as a church. Those categories are too small for us. They are too small to contain the kind of love that we should be displaying. We are united because the king of our kingdom told us, love one another as I have loved you. And so the rest of our days here are to be spent figuring out how to do that for ourselves and for everyone around us. The commandment was new because of its object, love one another, but also because of its intensity. The measure of this love is love one another, how, as I have loved you. And so it's in this phrase that we see the command's radical new nature, because right, we would all commit that, all admit that following the, the, the command, love your neighbor as yourself, which is what the old commandment, that's what it said. That's far more, uh, that, that, that's difficult, right? That's hard to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it is far more difficult to love others as Christ loved them. That, that's sacrificial love. That's a different kind of love. That's the kind of love that says, nobody's taking anything from me. I'm giving it of my own accord, And in this moment, in this room, with these disciples, that love is defined by Jesus' dealings with Judas. When Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you to this room, the disciples naturally thought of Jesus' love, right? His consistent love and provision for them. They'd seen him work miracles. He'd been with them for these years. He washed their feet, but they could not know then that Jesus was talking also about Judas, they couldn't know that that's who he's talking about. They're, they're beginning to, to see that maybe what's going on with Judas. And the temptation would be to think of Judas as an enemy, but then they think back to this moment that although Jesus knew that Judas thought of him as his enemy, Jesus reached out to him because just like us, Jesus had no enemies. We have no enemies. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. Why? Because the love of Jesus that is now poured out into us by the cross and the resurrection means that in the coming kingdom, love will overcome everything that makes people your enemy and they will be your brother, your sister. There will be no enemies in the kingdom. Within the church, if we're to love one another as Jesus loved us, we have to reach out in reconciliation. We have to reach out in love and forgiveness to those who are even actively still wronging us. We treat people as though they are already our friends as Jesus does with Judas here. It's so hard. And when that's done, that becomes an incredible witness for the gospel, right? Verse 35, Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what's probably the greatest gift that the body of Christ can give the world is to love one another, in this radical sort of Jesus love in the upper room kind of way. See, the the radicalness of Jesus love in the upper room comes as he reaches out to the one who did not want him to reach out and who did not want him to return that love. And so that is the question I just wanna leave us with today. Will we love this way? Will we love like Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this uh, moment to hear from your word, to let it lean in on us, to think about the fact that you washed the feet of the man who would betray you and send you to death. May we love like that. May we love in our workplace like that. May we love in our families like that. May we put to death the desire to ever get even. And may you, by your spirit, enliven in us the desire to always reconcile and to be ambassadors who are telling people by word and by deed, be reconciled to God and be reconciled to me. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is from um, uh, Numbers chapter 6. This is the blessing that we uh, normally speak over one another as we leave this place. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.